the Learn for Life podcast, exploring the people, the skills, and the global forces driving change in our professional lives with host Dr. Jason Wingard, Dean of the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, part of the Thought Leadership series, Talks at Columbia. Hello, I'm Dr. Jason Wingard, and welcome to the Learn for Life podcast. Here's a quiz question for our listeners. I'm about to list the names of five companies. All but one of them has gone on the record as saying, we are a technology company. Can you guess which one has not said that? The investment bank, Goldman Sachs, the salad chain restaurant, Sweetgreen, the ride sharing service, Uber, the multinational holding company, Berkshire Hathaway, or the athletic apparel retailer, Nike. You see, in the 21st century, arguably every company is a tech company. And as a result, companies from their boards to their entry-level employees need to be ready for digital upheaval. With me to discuss this topic of management in an age of new technology is Dr. Arthur Langer, Professor of Professional Practice, Director of the Center for Technology Management, and Academic Director of the Technology Management Program at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. Art, what do you have to say about that? I couldn't agree more. One of the things we know about technology, uh, the digital disruption that's going on, is nobody is safe from it. It happens. It happens very quickly. And every company needs to deal with the issue of how they're going to digitally transform. And there's no question that they're struggling. So you've been working with technology leaders and teaching in the tech space since the 1990s, when the internet was just starting to take off and mobile phone ownership was uncommon. Over the course of your career, you've worked with many technology executives, and in fact, you've been an executive yourself overseeing technology. One of your earlier jobs, I understand, was leading IT at a major accounting firm. Much has changed since you held that role, indeed. How did executives and companies view technology 30 years ago, and how does that compare to attitudes today? Interesting question, because I've done a number of studies and interviews with CEOs, and I'm currently engaged in one some 30 years later. Most executives looked at technology originally as an adding machine, uh, generating reports, more about ways in which they could support their organizations. We're now in an era where it's all about strategy, how to formulate it for competitive advantage. None of that truly existed 30 years ago. The interesting part, very interesting part, is you still have to keep the lights on. So now what we see in technology is that it is broadened. It has made its way into the strategic piece of the organization, as well as still supporting what needs to happen every day. You know, it's interesting, not 30 years ago, but 25 years ago, I worked at a company called Silicon Graphics out in Mountain View, California, and the building in which I worked is now a computer museum. So it shows how fast technology actually shifts. A McKinsey report came out recently saying that 70% of businesses plan to undertake a digital transformation. That's a large number, 70%. What's surprising, though, is the number that will succeed, only 30%, according to this report. Why do so many companies that have a history of success fail to adapt to our tech-driven world? They're too focused on the technology, and they're not focused enough on the cultural transformation. When people say to me, what does it mean to be a digital company, 90% of that answer really is about the cultural behavior patterns inside the firm, not necessarily all the technology that they're doing. In fact, uh, just recently, there's been reports that are now coming out that are beginning to accept the fact that that is the 
key. How do I get people to behave in a digital environment? And the challenge that all these companies are having is it's one thing to say you are in using technologies, but how you really act as an organization is what this is all about. So in the McKinsey report I just mentioned, there are some companies that are not investing in digital transformation, and that number is 30%. Is there a risk here either for companies that have already undertaken a transformation or for companies that are reticent to embrace large-scale change for some reason? This is a complex issue. We call these people that are sitting on the bench the laggards. They say, it's too early, I'll sit back, I'll let this technology mature a little bit more, and then I'll jump in. And honestly, there is some credential for that, Mm -hmm. to be a little bit late coming in. We're seeing that actually right now with Toyota, that's saying, I don't want to go all electric right away, I don't think it's ready, so I'm going to stick with my hybrid. It'll be interesting to see whether or not they're successful. On the other side, you look at the Amazon model. Let's capture the market. The early adopter in that market wins. Notwithstanding how much money I really lose, I stick with it, get the market share. Eventually, that market will come down and be less dynamic in its behavior. Both have evidence of success. Hmm, It's interesting. We see some parallels in the education industry. Higher education is reticent to change. They see what employers are looking for in terms of preparation of students and graduate students, but we are reticent to change. We are not changing the curriculum as aggressively as the employers may like, just like Toyota is not changing the car fuel type from gasoline to electricity as quickly as consumers may like either. Let's talk about technology and its role in globalization. The New York Times columnist and author Thomas Friedman wrote the now famous book, The World is Flat, back in 2005. He argued that many hierarchical structures and logistical hurdles have been flattened in the 21st century. As an example, employers no longer need to hire locally. Thanks in large part to technology, they can now look globally for exceptional talent. Looking at this concept through your lens and expertise in technology, how do you think professionals need to embrace this notion to excel in the next 10 years or 50 years? I think it's right on target. And, you know, there was a, there was a great scholar by the name of Prehalad at the University of Michigan that in 2006 put out an article uh, and a book which said you have to think global and act local. And it's almost an oxymoron, but he created this notion of N equal to 1 and R equal to G. And he said, every consumer in the next 50 years will want to be treated as an individual. And in order to support them, your resources must be global. Hmm. All right. Amazon, as an example, is a store that never closes. You can order something on Christmas Day and get delivery. Those are the companies that are going to survive. At Columbia University School of Professional Studies, we do research and thinking about the future of work. A topic that frequently comes up in this realm is the gig economy. People can earn income through contract work in a way that they never could before. In the U.S., more than a quarter of workers participate in the gig economy. Of those, more than one in 10 workers rely on gig work for their primary income. And when you look at tech firms, these numbers jump. 40 to 50% are contingent workers in that industry. In 2019, Google had more contractors than regular full-time employers, about 200,000 contractors versus 120 full-time employees. 
How will the emergence of the gig economy impact labor markets over the next 20 years? You know, we see the advent of the gig economy that really started getting created in the millennial workers. People who wanted to, number one, have multiple experiences in life, were fighting against the the notion that I'm going to work every day for 20 years or 30 years and in wait the, my turn. In the same company. That they <laughs> want to have an integration of their social life, and their intellectual life, and their work life in different aspects. And the idea that these individuals will only have one employer is may not be necessary. It's looking at things from a different dimension. And because of the high costs of having employees, and it is a very high cost in overhead, the gig economy, giving people to do multiple things when they want, giving them time off, and allowing them to have actually multiple interests is very, very, very attractive. And keep in mind that the millennial workers will be moving into management positions much faster than their predecessors, the Gen X and the baby boomers. This is a real reality. And let's also remember that this fall, 2019, the Gen Zs arrived at Columbia University. (laughs) And they once again have their own perspectives about what their view of the work life is going to be like. My second daughter will be arriving at Columbia in the fall, so all I can say is look out. Right. right. Gen Zers are here to stay. Well, our leaders and companies are grappling with how quickly new products and services can get to the market. So they're functioning in an incredibly connected world, the likes of which we've never really seen before. I've heard you talk about how it took the radio 38 years to reach 50 million consumers and only 19 days for Pokemon Go to reach the same milestone. What kind of leadership opportunities and challenges does this shift present to technology specialists who often are at the forefront of innovation? Well, what I have continually said to the leadership of technology throughout the world is this is your day. This is your time. One of the things that consumers do not necessarily see is that the technical challenges are enormous. Even though the end user and consumer see such simplification of how they can use their applications, everyone inside a company understands the dramatical technical challenges of cybersecurity, of uh, Internet of Things. These things are very, very technical. And it is my belief and what I have been suggesting to technology leaders is to grab hold of the cultural challenge. Because at this moment in time, no one's got their hands around how to make people more digital. Hmm. And he or she who captures that piece will become the most valuable players in their organizations. But you still need to understand the technology. So I'm encouraging these individuals to step up and reinvent their roles in companies. And we've seen some people do that. So as these individuals step up and reinvent their roles, it's obviously making organizations more efficient. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the need for businesses to respond quickly. Uh, So we're seeing more cyber attacks and data breaches than ever before. 
According to the World Economic Forum, these threats could cost as much as $90 trillion in the next 10 years. There's an incredibly urgent need to respond quickly to cyber threats. How do leaders balance the pressure to innovate quickly while also protecting their businesses and their customers? A word that has entered into the equation, particularly for technology people, is risk. You know, I always joke about batting average, and a baseball player gets a hit one out of every three times he gets up to the plate, he goes to the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And I often ask technology leaders, what's your batting average? Because if you're trying to bat 1,000, you're not taking enough risks. The name of the game here is not how much money you spend, it's how much you put on the table. You're going to get cyber threats. The question is going to be how often and what do you do when you do get them until new architectures come into place. I think many organizations are underestimating the percentage of revenue that they're going to have to spend in order to be competitive in the world with this issue. And one is fail fast. You've heard that name before. You're going to have to have more shows coming out in the fall than will make it. And uh, predictive analytics using technology will guide a lot of these decisions as we go forward. Art, I've heard you tell a personal story about your entry into the work world, which was made possible by a school teacher of yours. It inspired you to create diverse pipelines of talent for organizations by bringing together educators who train the talent and businesses who hire them. I'd like to ask you about your personal journey and efforts to help underserved communities get good jobs. The story is, uh, I don't think that unique, but but certainly important. Um, uh, my dad was a teamster during the Jimmy Hoffa era. He, he never went past the eighth grade. No one in my family uh, went to college. I was brought up uh, three blocks from Yankee Stadium. I was in junior high school in a tough neighborhood. And um, uh, my art teacher saw my work and asked if I would go to a um, Saks-quality furniture store that was offering art lessons Mm. for free Mm -hmm. and asked if I would go. And uh, I agreed. And I took the bus and I got there and I met Mr. Ness. I'll never forget his name. And he said one day to me, he asked me to come into his office and he said, Art, you know, you've got a lot of talent. Are you thinking of uh, applying to the High School of Music and Art? And of course, I said, what's that? And then he asked me if I had a portfolio, and I said, what's that? And he grabbed me by the collar, and he said, listen, I'll make you a deal. If you let me give you lessons and tell you how to develop a portfolio, will you promise me that you'll apply to the High School of Music and Art? And I said, okay, well, I'll go home and talk to my dad, which I did, and we agreed that he'd help me with my portfolio. And he gave me lesson after lesson. And right before I went to music and art to take the exams and draw and be interviewed, Mr. Ness grabbed me by the collar again. And he said, now you listen to me. I know the kind of friends you have. You're going to make music and art. You hear me? You're that good. And I remember walking up the stairs on 135th Street to Convent Avenue near City College, not too far from Columbia. And the interviews and the drawing. And I, I have to tell you, when I walked out, I knew I had made music and art. One man made a difference in life, and that's my definition of education. He didn't do it for me, but he opened the pathway. And in 2003, we we created, after a five-year study, an organization that would open those doors. But it is based on the demand side, which means it's, you know, it's, it's nice to be nice once, it's nice to be nice twice, but that kind of nice is not systemic. Demand is nice. 
and organizations saying, I would like more kids from underserved communities with this hidden talent. That's what Mr. Ness did to me. He discovered a hidden talent that no way I would have gotten out of the Bronx Mm -hmm. without his interest. And, you know, I never said thank you to him, but we've done 5,000 people that are now enjoying a life. And it was based on what that one man did for me, which we need to carry out. And I think that's such an important mission for all of us, is to find that hidden talent and bring it across. That's what we're responsible for in many ways as educators. What an important contribution you and the organization have been able to make. Uh, And of course, it's one of the reasons why we were influenced here at the School of Professional Studies to introduce access initiatives such as the Columbia Girls in STEM Initiative and the Columbia HBCU Fellows Program, both of which provide opportunities to find that hidden talent, those hidden talents from young men and young women who may not otherwise have the opportunity to pursue Columbia, to pursue the quote-unquote good jobs. We're going to wrap up with one final question, Art. It's the same question I asked our audience at the start of this podcast. Which of the following companies has not described itself as a technology company, and do you think it should? Goldman Sachs, Sweetgreen, Uber, Berkshire Hathaway, or Nike? Well, you know, Goldman Sachs was very quick to state that it was a technology firm and a third of their people, Sweetgreen, Uber, and Nike, all are consumer-based companies. And if you're not digital with a consumer-based company today, you're really in a lot of trouble. The one that's not so close to the consumer at this point is Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, Of course you got the answer, right? That's it. So, but as they do become closer to the consumer, my guess is they will have to become more of a technology. What's your prediction for how long before they make the shift? I'd say within five years. Okay, very good. Well, Art, thank you very much for joining me. You're preparing leadership to successfully meet the challenges of an always evolving digital age. As we close out this podcast, I'd like for you to help me articulate three key takeaways. What might they be? Well, the first one, which I tell all my students and and many executives, which they have forgotten, is the famous economic S-curve, which says this is the life cycle of any product or service. It goes from uncertainty of a market all the way to commoditization. And the X-axis on that is time. And what we know now is the S-curve is shrinking, which means you have less time to come up with an idea. Don't enjoy it too long because of technology, there'll be competition much sooner. So how do you create organizations that are change ready? So number one, the S-curve is shrinking. Got it. Okay. What's the second one? I mentioned before risk. Risk is part of reality, Mm -hmm. all right? And you better find your batting average. Now, if you're in certain parts of the world, don't use baseball because they don't know anything about (laughs) baseball. But if you make 10 shots how many of them have to land in a basketball court for you to be successful? So everybody has to find their risk awareness and capabilities. Okay. Risk is a reality. Good. Number three? Well, they told me that you could plan once, and we all come up with budgets, and we've gone from five-year budgets to three-year budgets to maybe a one-year budget. The reality is there was a wonderful book that came out by Bradley and Nolan in 1998, and they said the world is moving to sensing an opportunity and responding to it. And companies that can be change-ready, sense an opportunity, go there quickly, be agile, and respond to it as quickly as possible, those are the ones that will be most successful. Those are the digital success stories. So sense and respond. So there you have it from Dr. Art Langer. The S-curve is shrinking. Risk is a reality and sense and respond. 
Thank you very much again, Art, for joining us on the Learn for Life podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Learn for Life podcast, part of the thought leadership series, Talks at Columbia, hosted by Dean Jason Wingard, the author of Learning to Succeed, Rethinking Corporate Education in a World of Unrelenting Change, and Learning for Life, How Continuous Education Will Keep Us Competitive in the Global Knowledge Economy. We want to hear from you. Tweet your questions using the hashtag Talks at Columbia, and we'll answer them on future episodes. For more information about Talks at Columbia and the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, visit sps.columbia.edu.